0: Please be advised, we encountered some technical difficulties during the original recording of this sermon and have done our best to resolve them for this podcast. Please accept our sincere apologies. Your understanding is appreciated.
1: And so here's the point. If you recognize that Jesus Christ died for you, and then he adopted you into his family, and then he grafted you into an inheritance, and then he set the table before you, and that he functions as your heavenly father, and not just the sovereign king of the universe, as important as that is, but as your father. And if you knew that deep in your bones, deep in your guts, how would that change you?
0: Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses serious problems in the church that we still deal with in our day. And through this series, we're also learning how we can live for Christ, even as we're tempted to live for ourselves. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now here's this week's message. If you have
1: your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those and look for 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You might notice that that is exactly the same passage that we looked at last week. Um, And that's because I believe there is an equally important message that is still built within these same verses we looked at last week that we should look at again. So last week we talked about leadership in the main, especially as it pertains to the church. And this week I want us to talk about the freedom of self-forgetfulness, You might be asking yourself, what is that? Like, I think I might be married to someone like that. No, I'm not that kind of forgetfulness. Uh, This actually comes from uh, pastor and author Timothy Keller. He has a book with exactly the same name. And actually, it just so happens that he is giving this ebook away for free right now. I mentioned this in my uh, Lead Pastor update this past week. So if you love to read, this is a great time to do it. You can download that free of charge uh, this week. So I want to tell you a story that really captures the essence, I believe, of self-forgetfulness. And it's a story, a true story, about a four-year-old boy. And he's running through the halls of a very important place called the White House. Perhaps you've heard of it. And he's running past some heads of security, some of the most well-trained security clientele that the world has ever known. He's running past armed guards. He's running past very important heads of state, some of the most prestigious and important people in the world. He's just running past. And then finally he gets to the door that very few people have ever been able to enter in and through the Oval office. And he opens up the door of the Oval Office, and there he sees who at that time was widely considered to be the most powerful person on the planet,
0: President
1: John F. Kennedy. And here's a picture of uh, President Kennedy and his four-year-old son, John Jr. And I think this is a really kind of cool concept or a cool idea to think about because uh, this little boy, he doesn't really care who his dad is. He's not really thinking about him and how other people see him. He's not really thinking about himself. He's just caught up in his love for his dad.
0: And you could even take this a step further. Like, imagine if
1: one of these uh, security guards came up to this four-year-old boy and he said, where do you think you're going? What do you think the little boy is going to say? He's not going to say, well, even though I'm four years old, one day I'm going to go to Harvard. One day I'm going to, you know... Have a cure for cancer. Do you know what my security clearance is? He's not going to say anything like that. What's he going to say? There's my dad. I want to to go hang out with my dad. That's all he's going to say. And in the same way that I think is a helpful picture for us, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord of the universe, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that we don't come to him based on our pedigree, we don't come to him based on our CV or our resume or any other such thing. The only reason why we stand in the presence of God is because we have this picture in our mind, and even the apostles and Jesus himself tell us to do this, to say, Abba, Father, there he is, my Father. And I am his son or his daughter. And that's the perspective that we have. That we're not really thinking about ourselves. Instead, we're caught up in our father's love for us. And this right here, the apostle Paul is going to show us, is a mark of a supernaturally changed heart. Because here's the problem. On account of our sin nature, the traitor within, we not only have to question why we do all the morally wrong things that we do, we also have to question why we do anything good at all. Because I don't, I don't have to tell this, you, are, you already know this, that we can do all sorts of good and moral and kind things with a heart filled with pride, filled with fear, filled with arrogance, filled with self-centeredness. This is the story of Luke 15, right? You have an elder brother, you have a younger brother. The younger brother goes to his father and he says, give me my share of the estate. I don't want a relationship with you, I just want your stuff. And then he runs off and he wastes his entire inheritance in wild and reckless living. Meanwhile, the elder brother, what does he do? He stays home, he complies, he obeys the will of his father. But again, not because he loves his dad,
0: but because he too, just like his little brother, wants
1: his father's stuff. And at the end of the story, the elder brother is outside the banquet feast as far as we know. So it's not morality or immorality that is the basis for us entering into the Oval Office, entering into the presence of God. The only basis that we have is, there's my dad, there's my father. I love him and he loves me. And we have to have that picture in our mind for some of the reasons that the Apostle Paul will make clear. The mark of a supernaturally changed heart is not good deeds. It's not good deeds. It is a heart of self-forgetfulness. And we'll talk about what that looks like. So if you got your Bibles, look with me. 1 Corinthians, let's go back a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 21. He says, so then... No more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, another name for Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is in God. So we looked at this last week. This little church in Corinth it's filled with factions. Filled with divisions and people debating about which apostle they want to prop up or emulate most that will kind of benefit them the most, right? Because they believe that if you are aligned with the right leader or with the right organization or the right political party, that gives you standing over and above other people. It's a good thing we don't have that problem anymore. But it continues. Verse 1.
0: This, then, is
1: how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries of God has revealed. Now, it is required that those ha- who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. And so I I found a quote this past week. Um, The author is unknown,
0: but I think this really helps
1: encapsulate what we talked about already with John Jr. in the White House. And how children tend to have the gift of self-forgetfulness. The greatest example of humility is seen in children. Because children are able to forget themselves. Children are unfettered by what those around them may think or what they say or what they do. And because they're not thinking about themselves, children have no scruples about squealing with delight or wailing in despair their passion for things, their zeal for life, isn't self-centered. It's outside of themselves. See, that's a a really helpful picture or perspective that children have that we tend to lose as we age. It seems like we not only grow in self-centeredness as we age, but I think part of that is we become more keenly aware of what other people think of us. And we want to learn how to behave and conduct ourselves around people, especially important people, prominent people, prestigious people. And we we want to make sure that the way that they see us is in a very good light. And yet, children just don't think those ways, they don't think about those things. But the calling for us as Christians is that we would be like children with respect to our self-forgetfulness. That we would adore the Father. That we wouldn't be preoccupied with ourselves. That we wouldn't scrap and pull and push in order to make ourselves look better. But that we would seek to emulate the Father and to love the Father. And in that way we can love other people without secret or hidden motivations. Without other secret goals but we would just love him because we love him. And one of the things that we learned about this uh, city in Corinth was that it was a really, really important port city in Rome. One of the things that I haven't shared with you yet is uh, Rome, about 100 years previous, went into Corinth, and they just tore it all apart. And so it was a heap of rubble. And then Julius Caesar came in later, And he rebuilt the city because he saw it as an opportunity for it to be a really prominent place because, again, it was next to the Mediterranean Sea. It could be a port city, a really important uh, place for commerce and for business. But what happened then, because the city was built so quickly and because people saw opportunities, a lot of prominent people, rich people, successful people, all moved to Corinth. And that's kind of the way that the city is, is built, and it seeped its way into this tiny little church in Corinth that they're really, really, really preoccupied with themselves. They're really self-centered and conceited. And we've already seen that over the course of the last couple of weeks. So let me, let me look at this a little bit closer with you. Look again at verse 21. It starts this way. It says, So then, no more, what's the word? Boasting. No more boasting So boasting is the theme here. Now let's pick up by reading the last two verses, chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of the one over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What did you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So do you see what Paul's doing here? He, he's making a bit of a boast sandwich. And everything in between highlights two things. Why we boast, right? Why is it that we're so concerned with ourselves and how we can be freed from it? Why we boast and how we can be freed from it from it. So this is the way I put it in your note sheet. The problem is, if you boast about anything other than Jesus, it will cause fractures and divisions.
0: And that happens pretty much anywhere, not just in church.
1: It happens in our family. It happens in business. It happens in politics. In every sphere of life, we are tempted to make it all about us. As a result of our sin nature, we all have a narcissism complex.
0: All of us
1: have the struggle of self-centeredness. And so let's look a little bit more closely at this. Look again at verse 21. He tells the church, don't boast in human leaders. But again, this isn't prescriptive. He's not saying the only issue you'll ever face in terms of boasting is with other leaders. No, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And we boast in a lot of different things. There's so many things that we can boast in. And then he says this at the end of verse 21. It's really interesting. He says, all things are yours. All things are yours. What's he saying? He's not saying all things are yours in the apostles, in Paul and Apollos and Cephas and all the others. He's saying all things are yours in Christ. And so here's the point. If you recognize that Jesus Christ died for you, and then he adopted you into his family, and then he grafted you into an inheritance, and then he set the table before you, and that he functions as your heavenly father, and not just the sovereign king of the universe, as important as that is, but as your father. And if you knew that deep in your bones, deep in your guts, how would that change you? How would it change the way that you live. Perhaps we wouldn't be so busy posturing. We wouldn't be so busy trying to climb on the backs of other people. So concerned with how other people might view us. Maybe, just maybe, we would then be more concerned with our character in the eyes of God than our reputation in the eyes of others. Did you hear what I just said? Maybe we would be more concerned about how God sees us than how others see us or how we see ourselves. And this is the freedom that Paul wants to give us. And then we pick up and continue in verse one. This is where we spent the majority of our time last week. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. So some are saying, I follow Paul because, you know, Paul planted this church and uh, I was a disciple of Paul. And others are saying, no, I, I follow Apollos because he's the most recent pastor. Some are saying, I followed Cephas. And they believe, like I've said already, that if you're close to one of these leaders who you're propping up and emulating, then you have more prominence in the community. But it's actually worse than that. It's worse than that. Because one of the things that we know is that all these leaders are gone. They're all gone. So Paul, he left. He's in Rome when he writes this. We know that Priscilla and Aquila, prominent leaders in this church, uh, they're in Colossae at this time. We know that Peter isn't there. He's in Jerusalem. And even Apollos, he is not there at this time. He's off in the island of Crete. So there's a leadership gap within the church right now. The reason, according to extra-biblical manuscripts, the reason why Apollos isn't there is because he became sick and tired of all the fighting, which is just ironic, right? He, he leaves. He says, I, I can't deal with this anymore. And now there's a leadership gap, and they're all fighting to see who the next leader is going to be. They see an opportunity to garner power.
0: Paul lays out the roadmap not to be filled with pride, but to be filled with self-forgetfulness. Recognize who Christ is and what he has done for you. Now, here's where this gets interesting. I think more often than not, we see this as an issue of pride. Someone has a big ego. This has actually been a huge topic of debate over the years in how we should deal with the human problem. Just give me a second to lay this out for you, because I think this will not only help us understand ourselves, but also our culture around us as well. So when we think of issues related to crime or violence or drug abuse or wars among nations, poverty, the issues among the social and economic classes, or racism, you start asking questions like, why is the world not the way it's supposed to be? Why are people so cruel? Why do people do bad things? Why do some people do evil things? And over the years, we've had different answers to that question. Every person on the planet is interested in these three questions. Where did we come from? That's the question of creation. And question two, what went wrong? That's the question of the fall. And question number three, how do we fix it? Well, that's the question of redemption. These are questions tied to our worldview. And depending on what your worldview is, Your answer to that third question is going to vary. How do we fix the issues we face? For instance, up until the 20th century, most traditional cultures have said that the problem with the world is because people had too high a view of themselves. They were filled with hubris. They had pride. They were egotistical. They needed to come down a notch. And that idea isn't entirely gone. I have a friend who lives in Australia, and he explained a term to me I had never heard of before. He said that people in Australia will say, someone's going poppy. That means that someone is having a lot of success or achievement, and it's going to their head. And what they really need is for someone to bring them down a notch. In our modern Western culture, Particularly in the U.S. and Canada, we have a totally opposite cultural consensus. The basis of our education, of the way in which we treat incarcerated prisoners, the basis of a lot of our legislation, the basis of our counseling in our culture, is exactly the opposite of the consensus we just talked about. Our belief today is that people misbehave for lack of self-esteem because they have too low a view of themselves. It's deeply rooted in everything. It's a cultural consensus. So the reason husbands beat their wives, the reason why people are criminals, the reason why there is gang violence or rising addictions to opioids and drugs is because they have too low a view of themselves. Traditional cultures said the problem is you have too high a view of yourself. You're proud, egotistical, and filled with self-esteem. Today, we say that the problem is that you have too low a view of yourself, and what you need is a higher self-esteem. How many of you have played on a team before?
1: Pretty much everyone here. Okay, how many of you have, on those teams, encountered failure? Like, you, you lost the game, or, you know, big foible, or mess up with drama, or with choir. How many of you have had failures? Man, pretty much everyone has had failures on a team. Well, it's interesting, with respect to this topic... We tend to have one of two responses when it comes to failure. The first temptation in failure on a team is where you would justify yourself. This is the pride response. Right? So what do we say when we fail? We say something like, well, I had my man. You know, he, he didn't guard his. He didn't try as hard as I did. You know, In the off season, he wasn't training as much as I did. And the reason why we failed isn't because of me. It's because of them over there. And if they did their job, then everything would be okay. But otherwise, there might be some of us here who are more lean toward the shame response. And that's the second one where you beat yourself up. And so when you encounter failure, you go, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm such a failure. It's all my fault. If I just did my job, everything would have been better. But basically, the reason why we lost is because of me. Because of me. But here's, here's what I want you to see. And this, this might pinch. This might hurt a little bit. Either way, whether it be self-centeredness of pride or self-centeredness of shame, it's still self-centeredness. I told you it would hurt. Self-centeredness of pride or self-centeredness of shame, it's, it's still self-centeredness. We're still focused on ourselves. And what's so interesting about this passage is Paul says that both of those responses are wrong. Both of those responses are incomplete. Both of them work under the assumption that to deal, the best way to address the problem of the self is by looking to the self. The best way to address the problem of the self is by looking to the self. And then he picks up in verse 6. He says now brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up, I love that, in being in favor or being a follower of one of us over and against another. See that word puffed up? I love this translation. This is the Greek word physiomai. Some of you have boasting or pride in your Bible for the translation. I think puffed up is a perfect translation. This Greek word only shows up six times in the whole Bible, and all six times, all six, is in 1 Corinthians. So outside of 1 Corinthians, the word is never used. It's a medical term. And here's what it means. And Rather than explain it to you, I'm just going to show you. So here's what it means to be puffed up. This is what physio my means. I failed, I failed, I failed. It's all about me. I failed, I failed, I failed. The reason why we lost is because not because of what I did, but because of what they did. They're the problem, I'm not the problem. I'm a truly humble person. Have I told you lately how humble I am? I am such a humble person. Some say I'm the humblest. Okay, I got to tell you something, just so you all know. It will likely pop, but they got me covered. Dan is going to mute it in just a moment in case you're scared. It will be scary. Have I told you lately that it's not about me? Just so you know, it's not about me. And my name is Justin, and it's not about me. I'm going to faint on stage, but I'm going to keep going. That's physiomy. That scared me. the self-centeredness of pride or the self-centeredness of shame. It's still self-centeredness. It's still self-centeredness. And we become puffed up like a balloon when we make it all about ourselves. And so Paul uses this word physiomide. This this is gonna sound kind of gross, but it's a medical term. Whenever an internal organ began to become inflated, And then it burst. That's what that word means. And he's trying to give them a word picture. To help them see. That that's what you're doing. You're making it all about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And so whether you use the pride response. Or the shame response. I put it this way in your note sheet. The natural condition of our inflated sense of self. Is that we will ultimately feel empty. Empty empty have you ever had that feeling before no matter how big or how inflated we become we still feel incredibly empty one of my favorite authors he's he talks in old english Uh, his name is soren Kierkegaard. Uh, he, he wrote a book called sickness unto death and he says that the normal state of the human heart is to try to build its identity around anything else besides god And I've shared this with you before. What what is spiritual idolatry? It's when you take a good thing and you make it a God thing. And on account of that, what happens? It becomes a broken, tainted, and terrible thing. Because they're not meant to satisfy your soul. All of God's creation is not meant to satisfy you in that way. It never will. It's meant to be a gateway, a window into a divine reality. Helping you see the love and the character of God. So when you enjoy a good meal... When you spend time with friends, when you enjoy the company of your spouse or the people you love, when you go for a hike and you see that beautiful vista and you put your face in your palms and you're just marveled at creation, all of these things are meant to point to the one who made them for you to say, oh my goodness, God, you did it again. That is amazing. I can't believe it. So awesome. God bless you. I worship you for what you have done. But what do we do? We take the things that God has made and then we try to find a sense of self-fulfillment in the created things that God has made. So we, we kind of like kids on the playground if they're playing with Legos, right? We might want to pull them off to ourselves so we can build our own little thing and you don't get to have it, it's mine. And we try to build our own little mini kingdoms over and against God's kingdom. It's ugly. But we all do it. Every single one of us Does it? We look for a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, a sense of purpose in God's created stuff. Pastor and author Timothy Keller, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, he talks about how this emptiness ultimately leads to some really sad things. Number one, it leads to pain. Right? Because, again, it it can never satisfy you. Number two, it leads to busyness, right? That's the reason why there's so many of us, no matter how successful we become in work, we just want to keep climbing the corporate ladder. We want to be even more uh, successful. It's an insatiable desire for us just to grow and to spend more time in our work, to build up our empire, to build up our kingdom. And one day you retire and you say like, what am I now? What am I now? I I can't even socialize with friends or with my spouse because I've just been so addicted to my work, so focused on my work. And another thing that it does is it ultimately makes us incredibly fragile people. We're fragile because we need the affirmation of the things that we're building or the affirmation from others in order for us to know that we are important people, that we matter that we're loved, and that no matter what happens in life, that that I have specialness, but we look for it in things that ultimately won't satisfy us, and that's why we feel empty inside. We realize that it's all just a big facade, and our deepest fear, our deepest fear is that someone might notice that I am empty inside. That I've, I've hidden the inside, that all in here it's empty, but on the outside, everything's great, everything's fine. I've talked to you before about, you know, the, the parking lot miracle. That's where, you know, you scream at your kids and your spouse on the whole way here, and then you get into the parking lot, and it's like, oh, Jesus is here, and like, we're all fine, everything's fine. Man, we should die to that. And just say that this is who I am, this is, this is what I'm struggling with. And let God fill it. And I think the best example of this is, and I'm not trying to pick on them, but it's the most obvious and blatant examples with our celebrities, right? We might look at celebrities and say, wow, it must be amazing to have all that attention, all that money, all that fame. But by their own admission, many of them will say, I'm just one bad review away from losing every sense of self. So let me give you a couple examples of this. The, the first one, I've talked about this, uh, this person a lot, Tom Brady. Right? He's got 7 Super Bowl rings. He's still married to a supermodel. He's got all the money and fame that money can buy. Men want to be him, women want to be with him. And yet, he's just filled with emptiness. By his own admission, he's filled with emptiness. And I can't say this definitively, but what leads to someone retiring and a month later saying, "I got to come back. I got to come back. I got to come back." What leads to that? Well, maybe, just maybe, he realized something, that Tom Brady, without being Tom Brady the quarterback, is nothing, at least in his own eyes. He says, there's emptiness, because I have placed my identity in this stuff. Or perhaps you've heard of Chris Evans. You know, he's uh, Captain America. He's uh, become a a very handsome, muscular man that uh, men want to be and women want to be with, and yet he says, these are his words, he says, I don't consider myself that way. Many actors are saddled with raging insecurity, and I am no exception. I am drowning in it. I'll give you one more example. This is Madonna. Have you ever heard of her? She seemed, she's, you know, pretty high up there. And she says this. Her words, this, this is amazing. She says, every time I accomplish something, I say, now I have the verdict that I'm somebody. And the next day I realize, unless I keep going, I'm not. My ego can't be satisfied. My desire for self worth and to be sure I'm somebody needs a verdict, and it's not coming. I keep thinking I've won it from what people have said and from what the magazines have said, and the next day I have to go somewhere else. Why, why do you think she thinks that way? She continues because my ego is insatiable, it's a black hole. It doesn't matter how much I throw into it, the cupboard is bare. I put all kinds of stuff in it every morning, and the next night it's bare again. So she says, I've become somebody, and I still realize I have to become somebody. Man, do you feel that? Madonna, pretty successful, pretty famous, pretty well-known. She's got all the money money can buy, and she says, it's nothing. It's nothing. My ego's insatiable. You might say, like, that sounds kind of neurotic. No, she knows herself. She has. She's articulating the human condition apart from God that every single person on the planet feels this way, ourselves included. She's, she's just giving it language. And it's the reason why Christian mathematician Blaise Pascal, he says this in response, not in response to Madonna, but in response to this topic. He says, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in a man true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there to help he cannot find in those that are, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. I wish I still had my balloon. Because here's what it's like. Every single day, you blow up that balloon, and it gets a little bit inflated. And you might think to yourself, I had a good day. Man, things went well today. And maybe it's a little bit, a little bit bigger than most days. And then you put your head on the pillow at night, and what happens? It deflates. You get up the next morning, and you say, it's a new day. Seize that day. I'm going to have a great day. But maybe you have a poor day. And you just stay deflated, and you become deflated. And the next day, you say, okay, today I'm going to have a good day. And maybe you do. Maybe you don't. But at the end of every day, when you put your head on that pillow, you just become deflated once again. you got to fill it up again. In the teeth of your exertions, you got to fill yourself up again. And that is the reason why many of us look outside for things that will fill up and satisfy our soul. Your work, sexual fulfillment, maybe a drug of choice. You go back to the drink, you go back to the drug. And yet, here's the thing. If you keep committing to that, the kick just isn't as good. And then you're committed to something not to satisfy your cravings, but so that you can numb the pain. That's the reason why you keep going back to it. And it's devastating and crushing and it has a grip on many of us. On so, so many of us. And Paul says, I don't want that for you. I don't want you to, re- to think to yourself, if I have more self-esteem, more pride, then I'm going to fix the problem. Or I just need more shame, uh, what Australians call, I need more poppy syndrome. I just need to be cut down a bit. Then it'll be okay. It's not about you. The solution isn't found in you. That's Paul's whole point. You can't look to yourself for this. You will ultimately feel empty. And I feel like I need to articulate something. Um, If the point hasn't been made yet, I just need to make sure it's absolutely clear in your mind. Even shame as a response does this, not just pride. Shame can do this too. Shame can become a source of self justification just as much as pride can. And it's for that reason that um, Tim Keller in his book says this a truly humble person would not always be saying that they're a nobody, because a person who keeps saying that they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. Ouch. I consider myself in that camp. Many of you perhaps are in that camp. It's not about me. It's not about me. I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. And yet, it's just because we're so self-obsessed. We're so focused on ourselves. And he responds by saying this, the thing that we would remember from, a meet, from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of the gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. That's the answer. Thinking of myself less. And the gospel becomes this beautiful message that we can see on the front end that I am made in the image and the likeness of God. That the the identity of God is placed upon me. And I am liberated. I am set free because of how God sees me. So here's what I want to do with the remainder of our time. I want to show show you how he does this. If your Bibles are open, look at verse 3. He says, In essence, I don't care what you think. And initially, it sounds like what he's appealing to is our more modern version of building up a greater sense of self-security and self-worth. Kind of like that nursery rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I'm indestructible. No one can hurt me. I'm filled with pride, right? I just need more pride. I need more self-esteem. I need to build myself up. That's what I need. That's why I don't care about what you think. But he's not saying that. And he makes that clear with where he goes next. He says, I don't even care what I think of myself. Of myself. So he says, I don't look to you for the verdict. And I don't look to myself for the verdict. I don't look at other people. I don't look at myself. The verdict can't be found there. And then he says, it is God who judges me. And the word there is where we, the Greek word is where we get our English word for acquittal, which is a declaration of innocence. So here's the essence of what the Apostle Paul is saying. I do not find my sense of self-worth and judgment in the eyes of other people. I do not find my sense of self-worth and judgment in my own eyes. I don't judge myself. Ultimately, I look to Jesus. What does Jesus think of me? What does the Lord of the universe think? Think of me. That is where I will find my sense of self-worth. And so here's what Paul is saying to Tom Brady, to Chris Evans, to Madonna, and to every single person in this room. He essentially is saying this. For those of you who have come to Jesus, the verdict is already in. And you are infinitely precious, infinitely valuable in the eyes of God. The verdict is already in and God sees you and he delights in you. Believe that. Believe that. And so every day, if we don't have our identity in Jesus, it's going to feel like going into a courtroom. Every single day, you're stamping for evidence, giving it to the defense, giving it to the plaintiff, And on some days, you're going to feel like you're winning the court case. And on other days, you're going to feel like you're failing. But every single day, you're on trial. Every day, you're on trial. And that's why it feels so lonely and helpless and empty. It's why we're filled with fear and dread and self-doubt. It's because every single day, you have to fight and pull and push and pontificate so that you can be self-fulfilled. But it is only a gospel person a truly humble gospel person who can become self-forgetful and say, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think of me and it doesn't matter what I think of myself because I know what God thinks of me. And I know this, the verdict is already in. And here's what the gospel says. The gospel takes it a step further. I put it this way in your note sheet. With Jesus, you get the verdict before the performance. You get the verdict before the performance. Do you know what that means? It means you don't go out your door every single morning trying to prove your self-worth and to say, if I'm good enough, if I'm moral enough, if I'm strong enough, if I can build up my empire enough, if people like me enough, then everything will be fine. But I got to push. No, Jesus says the, the verdict's in already. You have been declared innocent, clean, precious, and beautiful in the eyes of God. Now, based on that foundation, go out your door. And so the reason why we love God and the reason why we can love our neighbor is not because we think we can find fulfillment in those things, but because we already know the verdict is in and and we just want to bless others the way that God has blessed us. It is the fruit of our faith which leads to obedience, not some sort of moralistic righteousness that we think is going to get us into heaven. And that's what Paul wants you to see. He wants you to see this. And then we have to ask ourselves this question. How could that be? How is it possible that this could be true? Paul tells you. He says the reason why he's no longer in the courtroom, the reason why he's no longer being judged, is because Jesus took trial for you. He entered into the court. It was a kangaroo court. It was a total farce. But he was condemned so that you could be set free. And that is why the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We are set free. Why? Because of the blood of the Lamb. Because he was tried. Because he was put into a court of law. Because he was the slaughtered Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world And because of what Jesus has done, we are acquitted. We are set free. So let me tell you something. Many of you know this already. But when we talk about the judgment day of God, we believe two things. Number one, there is a literal literal judgment day and it is coming. It is coming. But for the Christian, we also believe that we can view it as though it is in past tense. Why can we believe that? Because the sacrifice has already been paid So there will be a day in which I stand before the throne of God and God will look at me and he will say, Justin, give an account of yourself and I will be exposed. God will see the secret things of my heart and everything will be laid bare. And before he takes the mallet and slams it down in judgment, Jesus will stand in front of me and he will say, do not look at the immorality of Justin, look at the perfection of me. And because of what Jesus has done, I will be sanctified. I will be set free. I will be acquitted because of what Jesus has done. And we can bring that to the bank. And so here's here's what I want you to see as you go out your door today. That you can know that the verdict is already in even before the performance. That the way that God sees you is that you are more precious than all the gems under the earth. You are more precious in his eyes than anything else that he has ever made. That's how he sees you. My hope
0: and my prayer for you is that that is the way that you see yourself in Jesus. You've been listening to the latest message in our First Corinthians series focused on learning godly solutions to the problem of sin in our lives. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.